0: What would it look like if I made more decisions and better decisions through more data and even more importantly, better data? Hey
1: everyone, it's Noah Barnett, the VP of Marketing here at Feather. And today in the studio, I'm joined by Tim Lockie, the founder of The Human Stack and a great friend, uh, a good confidant and a a frequent text buddy. So, uh, hey Tim, it's great to have you in the studio today.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm so excited to be here, and I of all the things you said about me, uh, text buddy is my favorite because I think that that is genuinely true. It's been fun to get to know you through text and just like see something come in and 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 talk with you about it. So yeah, uh, it's really fun to talk with you. Something I think is more
1: important to me personally, and I think I've heard this reflected in others is this movement from like these personalized squares, like LinkedIn's great. I love LinkedIn, other social medias, whatnot. It's awesome. But this migration from the personalized square to what I call the private square, which is like text message threads or small groups or small Zoom calls or private conversations or even large, like where there's a thousand chief marketing officers in a group that I'm a part of. But it's moving off of this like personalized feed to the private chat or the private connection. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for organizations to continue to lead into, but we're not going to talk about that quite yet because I want to make sure people know who you are, Tim. Uh, and we introed with that the, you're the founder of the human stack, which we're going to get a lot into. And I know you're a great human, and people heard the human stack and they're like, is it a stack of humans? Is it like something <laughs> IHOP offers? Like, is it like a new pancake stack or something else? We're not sure, but let's not give the lead away. Before we get into that, I want to know, like, What was your squiggle to get to the seed that now is the human stack? What was that journey for you? And why this? Why now?
0: I've been in nonprofit work since I was 18. And I think it's authentic to tell you all I've really cared about personally and professionally is making the world better. Now, I haven't done that much to make the world better, but it's what I've meant to do. Um, so at least if I fail at that, I've I've failed at the right thing, and that matters to me a lot. I started that journey. Interestingly enough, a homeless guy really shifted my whole world when I was a junior in high school, and uh, I was on this trip, met a homeless guy, and um, it was the first homeless person I had just gotten to know. His name was Joseph. Um, what felt really interesting to me is that this guy took an interest in me. He even gave me a fake Rolex watch, which I proudly wore to prom that year. And um, and I think it opened my eyes to seeing that this was a person in poverty. I didn't. I stopped seeing him as a problem to solve and started seeing him as a person. And I think that that theme just carried on into the work that I did. So you know, I uh, lived in a church commune where we were. Part of each other's lives in a really significant way. I did overseas international uh, aid work with uh, with an NGO, and I was in charge of planting new teams and the technology. And where wherever I would go, I would end up in the back room doing technology over and over and over, and finally um, realized, okay, that's my jam. That's the thing I do. And I had learned Salesforce along the way, so I started a Salesforce consulting firm. And uh, I did that for about 10 years. And in 2019, uh, in 2019, I, s- I saw a statistic that said 90% of organizations collect data, but only 5% of them uh, use that data to make decisions. And there's a line in the sand of my life before I saw that and after I saw that. And before that, I was like, "Yeah, oh, there's something kind of wrong with consulting and technology for nonprofits." And after that, I was like, "I know it's wrong, and I'm part of it." And I couldn't, I couldn't live with myself just doing that, so I had to make a shift. Uh, but that's kind of how that's the that's the squiggle. I became uh Salesforce MVP. I traveled all over the world talking about Salesforce in all different countries. I I loved leading a team of about 20 other consultants, none of which had been in technology all of whom had been in in nonprofits and and it was a blast running that team i loved what we were doing i loved the shape of it and um and all of that but yeah that that statistic kind of put that whole business out of business uh and that's that's how i ended up here
1: yeah and that's great and i love the the starting with the story, you know, we're, this is the good marketing unplugged podcast and marketers love a good story. And I think there's such power in, and relatability and in sharing Joseph's story to kind of, and that collision that then resulted in your story shifting. And then another collision with this statistic and then, you know, future collisions in the future and how that's kind of evolved, um, there was also one thing you said, you talked about this idea that like there was a stat, right? And it was not, you yeah, know, I forget what the stat was exactly, but basically a lot of people collect data. Not many people make data informed decisions. Listeners to this podcast right now are thinking, well, I'm not one of those people. I use data to make decisions. I'm sure of it. And if you're listening to this on a walk or a run or a treadmill or a car and you're like feeling offended, that was intentional because I don't <laughs> think they actually are, but I think we would say we are. So what qualities or attributes would someone have that they then know that they are using data to make decisions versus having data and making decisions? Because having data and making decisions are is different than using data to make decisions. How would you unpack that for our listeners?
0: I mean, very carefully, First of all, <laughs> but um I I do if you are on that treadmill and running, I do encourage you to hold on to that offense just for a second because it's it's an energy, all right. So let's convert that energy now to something positive, which is what would it look like if I made more decisions and better decisions through more data and even more importantly, better data. And I think that one of the first things to say is that the reason most nonprofits don't use data to make decisions is that they're smart enough to know better. Like they, they've they seen how that data is made. They know who's putting that stuff in there. They know how much is missing and they know how much fakery has gone into just making sure that there's a required data entry in a required cell, right? So are Let's you saying there's
1: distrust clear. in data? <laughs> is that oh, what you just
0: said? <laughs> I'm, I'm saying it's a rational decision to not make some decisions based on the data if you know how that data is made. And so, that person and that on the treadmill
1: is, is now smiling because they're like, ah, Tim came around and made me feel better about myself because I'm, <laughs> I'm a rational go. human.
0: <laughs> there we go. You see how I did that? Um, and I think that that's important to know. I don't blame people for not using data to make decisions. As an economist, one of my core beliefs is that people are making rational decisions all the time. And if they're not using that data to make decisions, then one of the reasons is because they know better. Now, there's another whole set of reasons around that is that creating decision-making around data, if it's just you, is relatively easy. So if you're your own marketing team, the uh, data to decision-making pipeline is really straightforward. But the more segments you add to the team there, the harder it becomes to keep making those decisions. And so much so that I created a theory of change that breaks down the difference between data, information, and insight. And insight's the layer in which you make decisions. Data is what you collect for it. And that middle piece there of information is almost entirely the hangup, right? So let's just assume you're collecting data and you now trust it. And if there's one team that can really get good data, it is the marketing team. You've got Google Analytics, you've got your CRM that's pulling stuff in. You've got all of your website pixels, feather. hopefully, are hooked up, right? You know, they're so using
1: Feather effectively. They're using Feather clearly. effectively.
0: <laughs> that was the next thing I was going to say is that they are they are using Feather effectively. So you've got all you've got a larger amount of of data. I was even I was talking with uh, Clay Buck about how even even with direct mail almost all of that is still digital until you get the envelope right it's still very much a digital process so you've got all of this data that you're working in and data is just a number in a cell you know like 7 in a, in a cell that's that's data and um when you put that into a table and you say at the top day of the month right now you know that's the 7th day of some month you don't know which month and the point here is that data has to be combined with meaning in order to create information and and we leave that part out too so data and information are not the same thing and, and so you need that contextual idea first you got to trust the data then you have to convert it to information and if you do that you can then start to convert that to insight insight is something that's like okay why did we grow our reach twice as much over the last two months, right? Sounds like an easy question, but when you actually try and figure that out, there's a lot that goes into it. And that's the difference between information and insight. And there's one more layer on this is that different roles work at those different levels. So staff, like end staff are usually at the data level. Directors are usually at the information level and executives or key decision makers are at that insight level. So the more layers you add, the more people are working in those different sections, and you start to segment that out, and it becomes really, really challenging. So I want to say it's, it's actually a big lift to make data-informed decisions. It's not easy. Even, even if you have all the data, it's still not an easy process and requires a lot of practice. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's just uh, – hope. hopefully that makes you feel better if you're on, if you're on the treadmill there listening to this. Uh, And, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but it is, I do want to say it is possible to make increasingly better decisions with increasingly better data.
1: So you referenced these three circles and you also talked about the complexity of them, uh, increasing as team sizes increase or the more players in each of those circles are, what are Ways to evaluate where you're at in this. You know, we we slapsticked or jokingly said, like most people on this listening are in the category where they're making they have data and they're making decisions, but they're not using data to make decisions. Um, How do you evaluate where you're at in the maturity of your ability to make data informed decisions? What questions might you ask yourself or your team?
0: The very first one and. And this is not going to sound very data-informed, but I do want to say instinct is actually an incredible data point. So I don't under I don't underestimate the power of instinct. And so the first thing that I do when I'm working with an organization is I ask them six questions about their digital health, three that are human stack, three that are tech stack. And one of the tech stack questions is, do you trust your data? And if you ask a whole team, you know, or a whole department do you trust your data you're going to get their perspective on whether they trust their data and their perception of data quality is exactly the amount that they're going to trust it so if they are like 2 out of 10 on trust they're not going to and nor should they make decisions based on that low amount of trust so the first question is just really simple do you trust your data uh, do, do you think your data tells the truth or not and and then what you find is that data is not a monolith, right? So there are pockets where you trust data more and less. And and we all as humans, we're really good at kind of knowing like ah oh, that soft data I don't really trust it. It's good to get in there and really start looking at why do I think that's soft and is there something I can do about it? Could be that with two or three hours of work and a couple of changes to fields on, you know, on your CRM or your forms or you know uh, your website. Uh, you could actually trust all the future data, and with a few more hours, you could trust all the historical data. And now you've shored that up, so you so it's not soft anymore. So there's so data can actually be improved upon, and I think that's something that we miss. We're like it's either we trust or we don't. It's not really that way. It just depends on the question. And then the last thing I'll say on that is you'll know that you're starting to answer the question: Am I making this decision based on data? if you can point to the report that gives you a line in the sand on here's how i made that decision based on data not just i did or didn't but okay if if we are seeing that this reach is increasing by this much if we're seeing you know that we're finding new followers growing by this much on this ab test then i'm going to do x and if you can draw those out in advance and then let the data start pointing you to it you'll find that you're more comfortable or you're you're starting to make those decisions from data in a different way.
1: Yeah. I think those are great calibrations to to check, like checks that you can do where you're just like, do we trust our data? If so, or if not, are there are parts of the data that we trust. And then do we have data to back up a decision yeah. basically? Like, could we point to data to say this decision was made because of this? Uh, those are great great points.
0: And can you pre-make that decision? I think I didn't say it as clearly, but can you pre-make the decision so you can say like, if it's this, you know, in, in two months, if it's this, we're doing this way. If it's that we're doing it that way, then you're actually deciding on how to just to let the data decide for you. Got it. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. You're laying out some sort of constraints basically or saying, Hey, here's yeah. If this, then this, if not, then this, And that's how we're moving forward. So that's super helpful. Uh, You mentioned in there, you said, oh, there's three questions about the tech stack. And then there's three questions about the human stack. So now we've mentioned the human stack twice. And the audience is like, what the hell is the human stack? (laughs) And so could you give us kind of an overview of not only what the human stack is in practice, but your company, the human stack, and kind of what the thought process was there and what it actually is and and what it's trying to communicate?
0: When I saw that statistic in 2019, I carved out the rest of the year, half of my time to connect the consulting work I did to, and instead of orienting around how do we create deliverables customers will sign off on to how do we create behavior in clients that will make decisions based on data. And then I compared the way that I would do it to what we were doing and they were not the same. And I realized like, I think we've been doing consulting wrong. And so I built this new way of doing it, tried it out with several clients, retrained all of my staff on it. My staff were not that happy about that because they were really, really good at the way we had done it before. And now we were doing it a different way. And I did not even anticipate that, Um, but clients liked it. And not all all of them, but increasingly, we got better about where is this going to work so we could dial in who's the the right kind of client for this process. And that that turned into a methodology, and I took it to market. I thought everybody would be excited about it, and they weren't. It was either threatening to their business because they had established business models that worked really well, or it didn't make sense to people because I couldn't explain it quickly. So I spent the next two years learning how to say it so that my mom would understand it. And here's, here's the, the mom test and say, okay, mom, imagine Salesforce is like a car manufacturer and my old business is like a car dealership. And nonprofits would come to us and they would order their CRM car, you know, um, and we would go and we'd build it for them. And when we'd give them the keys to the car and then they would wreck it driving off the lot because they needed driver's ed, but they went to a dealership. And that that story made a lot of sense both to my mom and it, it started to make sense to other people too. Like there's something obviously wrong here. And the more I looked at what was going on in that story, I realized in our in our tech industry, and this is not just nonprofits, in the tech industry, we know how to sell cars, we know how to build cars because we have a tech stack where we've engineered and architected every single layer of that tech you know, that, that layer of tech communities uh, or of technologies. We have not done the same thing on the human side though. And so we needed a place to measure and architect and design the way that humans learn to drive. And since we have a tech stack where that's measured on one axis, I created the human stack for it to be measured on the other axis so on the tech stack you can do digital upgrading that's all you can do on the tech stack you can just get better tools that work better and i think feathers a great tool i think it's really important but at the end of the day it can only do it is a tool that you use to drive well right but if you don't have people that know how to drive it it can't perform at peak and this is the problem that we i saw over and over is that we need to actually start creating a separation between the actions of building and acquiring technology and And driving it effectively as a team. So that's where the idea for the human stack came from. and you you is basically where you can develop digital maturity for an entire team or business unit.
1: Yeah, no, that's super helpful delineation and extremely important. How I've heard it said before is, uh, if you live in Chicago and you hate your couch, you don't move to New York. <laughs> But a lot of our technology decisions are similar to that. You know, it's like, oh, we have to upgrade our tech. So we have to move from Chicago (laughs) to New York. And it's like, we actually just hated our couch. And your couch might have just been in the wrong place, or you could have just recovered it, or you could have just gotten a new couch, or...
0: Chances are you packed up the couch you hated and just took it to New York anyway, right? So it's still there, right? Exactly,
1: still there. So so I love, I love your your explanation and kind of the the storied narrative to it. Um, In the same question we asked about how do you know whether you are making data informed decisions or using data to make decisions? How does one evaluate? where they're at and maybe what they need on the human stack. And you mentioned digital maturity. So maybe that ties into it, but speak to that again. Someone's like, okay, we don't make data informed decisions. Noah's clearly told me that and Tim reaffirmed it and then told me that was a good idea. So I'm confused. Now we're talking about the human stack. How do I evaluate my maturity in kind of development? And then how do I know what I need
0: next? We we kind of say that there are five layers or five levels of digital maturity. and I'm going to say them. And if you're on the treadmill, just kind of think about which one you are. And the first thing I want to say on this is you do not need to associate any judgment to this. There is a shocking amount of fear and shame around use of digital tools. And I do not want to be a purveyor of that shame. I want to actually help you get rid of it because it's not doing you any favors at all. So when I'm saying these just kind of hold loosely. Yeah, I think objectively that's probably where I am. No judgment, just like, huh, that's interesting information. So on on one end there is resistance to technology, reluctance to technology, comfortable, engaged, and resilient. Now, I suspect Noah that you like me are good at tech. It's just like natural kind of easy for us we're resilient. Um and I think one of the big issues in technology is that almost all the tech is built by good at tech people. And we've lost the thread on what it's like to not be a good at tech person and to be introduced to technology. It's really scary. And one of the other pieces, it's not just the technology that that's scary, but one of the ways that we typically introduce technology to people is by a huge amount of change that creates a high amount of disruption. And then we tell them that their jobs are dependent on their ability to use that new technology. And then we give them a user guide, which like nobody uses. And then, uh, and we do a two day training and people can handle like learning 10 things in an eight hour training. And That was the first half hour. So there's seven and a half hours that they're just like trying to stay in touch. And like, that's not how humans change their behavior. It's not what works for us. That is how you change a, that's how you configure technology. You configure it one time and it stays that way. Humans, on the other hand, we change because of belonging. Belonging is the base code of the human stack. And so we need to actually start to ask questions around how how does using this technology pull someone closer into the culture of our organization. And interestingly enough, that means that maybe the most important technology to get in place with staff is Teams or Slack and Zoom, right? Because these are places where you actually connect with people. And the big shift that's happened is that we've moved to a place where our culture is hosted in digital tools. Um, And so I'm just saying that it's probably the case that most people creating the technology are resilient and resilient people have a low tolerance and patience for resistant and reluctant people, especially. And we just kind of are like, okay, resistance is bad and, or resistance is futile. I can't believe I left that on the table. Um, And so we, what we need to start with is to say, maybe resistance is actually rational just like the data thing. Like, you know, we I've been working with some small organizations, less than 10. Small organizations even have between 30 and 50 systems. And there should be some resistance around, do I actually need to use this one? Like, maybe this is not something I really need to know or use. That makes sense. Um, so just to say, like, no shame, and this is where you're at. But, okay, let's go back to those those levels. Resistant are people that... Lean away from the technology with intention. Reluctance is people that lean away from the technology, but passively. They don't really have a reason to. They're just like, I don't really like it that much. And then comfortable, like that's a comfort zone. Like take it or leave it. I don't really care. It's just something to learn. I don't love it. I don't hate it. Just, I use it. But engaged people, your engaged people are the juice in your organization for digital transformation. Because I've already covered the resilient people. We're crazy. We're into the tech too much. But well, we care about the tech for tech's sake. But engaged people, they care about the technology because it's helping them get something done and they are making better decisions based on what they're doing with it. And so the trick here is to have to get your engaged users, your comfortable users, and your reluctant users all in the same room and to get your engaged users to show everybody what they're learning. If you do that, you actually start to move your reluctant into comfortable. And you create a gap between your resistant and your comfortable and belonging hikes a vacuum so they'll move into reluctant. So that's that's kind of how we view it. That's kind of the flow that we work with. But my main point on this is that we need to rethink the way that we engage and ask people to use technology as a whole, as an industry. We can't just throw a user guide and a walk me at them and just assume that people will use it. That's not how humans are. And we need to start paying attention to the DNA of humans as, as belonging-based beings, rather than just agents on the tech stack that just need to learn their jobs and do it.
1: The anchoring to belonging as the path to improvement is extremely interesting. And I've never heard it actually, I don't even think you and I have ever talked about it in this way, ironically, and we talk frequently. Uh, obviously not enough or not specifically enough. And I I think many can resonate with this desire to belong and to be a part of it. And also then feel reminded of circumstances when they felt un- like they didn't have belonging because of maybe it was a technology thing or you came into an organization that was using a technology that you didn't understand or even just you walk into a new organization and there's like, all the acronyms and you're like I don't know what any of this stuff means um and you feel that right but I've never again I've never heard it applied to like technology adoption or the the collision of technology and humans to like produce performance and so that was really resonant and I feel like I'm very pensive about that now and how we create cultures even internally in my own organization as a marketer there's a lot of marketing tools that you use and there's a different level like marketers are kind of all over the place they can be analytical they can be super creative and you kind of have this experiment where you put all these people together you call it marketing because you're supposed to be ambassadors for the market and you're supposed to coordinate a bunch of things that engage the market with whatever you know your organization does in this case connect you know communities to the cause for many of our listeners And the spectrum of maybe defaults across that are going to have a different appetite naturally towards technology, but additionally, then a different appetite or familiarity or acumen with the technology that's being used today. And so going back and saying it's not about those things, first and foremost, it's about do you feel belonging to the organization and is there connectivity? It's such a uh, removal from what would be the typical playbook. And I feel very challenged even in some of the things we're dealing with in my own marketing team on how we drive this. So for someone in my shoes right now, who's who's kind of heard this for the first time or kind of thought about this, what are things that we can take action on now? Or what are the things that, you know, someone that's like, wow, this has been really helpful. I finally see it. I see the two, this two vectors. I think I know where we're at. Wow, we're not where we wanna be. Wow, this belonging thing's really powerful what, what now, what, what do you advise someone that's feeling that way? And I feel that way right now. Um, what, what do we do now? What do we do next?
0: I'm supposed to say sit with it, but like a Montana and I'm like wanting to move to action right away. So I'll just say like, you should probably sit with it, but if you're like me and ADD, you're going to want to move to action right away. There are three human stack digital health vitals that we pay attention to. One is digital strategy Another is uh, system sustainability, and then the third is accountability. And if you're like me, when you hear accountability, you immediately think how you challenge people who didn't do what they're supposed to do. That's how we just, I think, culturally think of, a, think of accountability. Digital strategy and system sustainability, like those are actually pretty easy variables. As a leader, I'm sure you have a plan got to let people know what it is and you need to not change it very much and these connects to the strategy. Okay. You got that. Like if you don't, you probably know what to do next with that system, sustainability, get people to complain. Complaining is a sign of hope. So just to have people tell like, here, this is not working for me. I don't know what to do with it. Just reward people for complaining and, and trust that if you can get people to complain, you can make changes in your system and you can make, you can make it more sustainable and you can kind of reverse entropy so that time works for you, not against you. If you just start making a few changes at a time, it'll start working for you. So that covers those two, which I'm want to uh, i glad to do because accountability is the magic one, and especially for you as a leader. So there are three forms of accountability. Well, first, actually, what is accountability? Accountability is attention plus power, right? That's what accountability functionally is in an organization that's almost always hierarchical and it's tied to status symbols that we don't even think of as symbols, things like how much are we paid? Like these are symbologies to us, not just amounts, right? And so um there's a high power in hierarchy and there's a lot of power in that focus. But accountability is just attention. So the worst form of accountability is ignoring staff that is absolutely like at least tell them what they're doing wrong right so ignoring staff again and again this has been shown ignoring people is the worst form of accountability the second one is um focusing on behaviors you don't like totally makes sense you need to do this as, you know like i think about this in parenting all the time but like you have to fo- you have to be aware of that and that's important but um the most impactful form of accountability is always focusing on the behaviors that you want to see. So as a leader, the thing I would start doing is saying, how do I find the people that are behaving with, you know, in technology the way the way that they should and how do I create belonging for them in the focus that I'm cre- you know that I see in that. For some people, that's like a ticker parade where people are really excited and you publicly say like you did this this thing it's really good. I love this report, this dashboard is telling me everything I need to know, yada, yada yada. Some people are really private and what they want is a Starbucks gift card, you know, and a thank you um, So that's as a leader your job to kind of know what works for your different staff. But the thing is is to say, I'm noticing what you're doing positively and we want you to keep doing that and to and to prove that with some kind of symbol so that they know that that's being seen. If you do those things, you'll actually start to move people towards the direction that you focus. Is that helpful? Is that too abstract?
1: No, I think it's super helpful. And I'm glad you went through the three vitals and gave feedback because I wouldn't assume everyone's got a plan because it could be that we've been focusing too much on the accountability and it's not working because we don't have a plan and no one knows what the plan is. It's like, I'm reinforcing, I'm doing the accountability thing. People are complaining. It's great. Tim said that was a good thing. And it's like, (laughs) oh, shoot. Like, I actually don't have a plan, right? Or like, hey, things are going swimmingly and no one's saying anything. And like, we feel like we're chugging along, but we're not getting to the results we're getting to, huh? That system sustainability might be the area that you need to look into. And obviously the accountability side, as you mentioned, is extremely important. And I think reframing accountability because so often we... We're held accountable when we did something wrong as yeah. children, as yep. as early staff, or so the, the examples we've been given, or when someone says, oh, they should be accountable. Like when you look at externally yep. in the market, it's like, it's because someone did something wrong or Definitely. I did something wrong. And now I need to be held accountable. Not I'm held accountable collectively. It's, it's not just in the wrong. It's not just when you get the performance improvement plan. Like now I'm going to be held in you accountable. It's like. No, accountability should be a uh, full court game.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And it create, especially like this was, this was totally news to me because I grew up in a very accountability and responsibility where a, what you did wrong kind of model, even though my parents were great, that that's just kind of the model that I grew up with. But when I started working under different leaders and I found a couple that knew how to press on the, you did this right. I worked twice as hard for them every single time. They were they got so much out of me and I got better at what I was doing too. So, you know, I think, uh, I think that that's a good point. And I don't, I don't think I said this, but there's a free quiz on our website that you can go and just do a quick check. It takes less than three minutes. And, and it does deliver like one to 10 on those six variables. And partly that's, that has been so helpful to make it a little bit more concrete. Like, if you do that with your whole team and you just compare the results, you actually can start to see how do how what's the perception of people around these areas, and that's really important information for leaders to be to just be able to see like here's what this looks like for us. So
1: this has been super helpful, and I know many will go and take advantage of that uh, quiz. You can check it out in the show notes, to, no matter where you're listening to this, um, and get a link to that. As we close, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. If you want to be connected to, I think, joy, insights, connectivity to other humans that care about this work, follow Tim uh, on LinkedIn, I think, his commentary. And the connections that you have are always worthwhile. So, Tim, it's been a joy. Thank you. Thanks for keeping it human uh, here on Unplugged, where we just go behind and do uh, these types of sessions where it's, you know, we're not plugged in and we're just talking real. And I think that's all we did today. So thanks for keeping it that way.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure talking with you and, um, really, really glad to have you draw out some of the, the, the work that a lot, a lot of other people skip over. So thanks. It's been really fun.